Well, hello, good evening, good morning, or good afternoon. And you know what? I've just realised I've said that in the complete wrong order, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I have no idea what time you'll be listening to this episode, but what's most important is that I welcome you. So welcome to the conversation. I hope that you've had a good week and I hope that you have plans for the upcoming week because it's spring, the days are getting warmer, the daylight lasts for longer and it's nice to have plans. If you've been paying any attention to my Instagram, then you will know that I'm currently on the beautiful island of Grenada in the Caribbean. I'm here for a little while and am I having a wonderful time? Have I been going to the beach, swimming in the warm Caribbean sea? Yes, I have. But have I also been editing my next book? Yes, I have. It's not all fun and games. There is work to be done, but I can't think of a better place to be doing my work than Grenada. Anyway, enough about me and my holidays. Today's episode features Leah Middleton. And Leah Middleton is a barrister who specialises in crime and prison law and an author. Her psychological thriller, When They Find Her, was number one on Apple Books. In this week's episode, we talk about, well, we try and work out why so many lawyers become writers, making their decision to quit instead of failing, recovering from the self-doubts and moving on from the stories that we tell ourselves, and publishing your debut when the world, the entire world, is in lockdown. Now sit back, we'll go for a walk, and enjoy this week's episode of the conversation. Liam Middleton, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Nadine. It's very lovely to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, I have, no, it's an observation I have to make. Okay. So you are my third guest mm-hmm. that I've recorded, well, I've interviewed, who started out in the legal profession. So I'm a barrister, solicitor, or a judge, not including me in this whole little scenario. Yeah, so... Yeah, there are a lot, a lot of, of well, this is the question. There's a lot of us. So my question is, why are we so attracted to the area of writing? Why are we becoming I, writers? I don't, I, I've talked to people about this before. I'm not sure what it is. I think, well, for me, definitely, it's sort of wanting like a creative outlet, something that, like when I was an advocate, so I used to be a prosecutor, that felt in a way like quite performative well very performative mm. and so a lot of the time I felt like I was getting that sort of creative buzz um just from being up in court um but once I became an advisory lawyer it's very <laughs> dry is the word I guess you know there's no there's no there's there's nothing creative to do you apply the law you advise on it etc cetera, etc cetera. so I think for a lot of us it's wanting that like creative um output but then I just think a lot of lawyers are you know we're interested in like details we're observers like we people watch we uh, sort of read people quite well I think just from years of being with so many people especially crime lawyers so yeah I think it just lends itself very well to writing if you have that sort of creative spark in you um, but I do find it so interesting how many of how many there are. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> no, there are loads. Because it's only I think last night when I was um, because you know I prepare. I like to say I prepare, so people don't just think I'm winging it. 
all the time. But when I prepare and I do my research, I just thought, ah, oh, I've had a judge. I've had a solicitor. Now I've got a barrister. Then I've got me. Yeah. I, thought, I just don't and then when you think about, mm-hmm. I suppose, like in the in the nineties with like the John Grishams of this mm-hmm. world, writing thriller after thriller after thriller. Yeah. And then those being turned into movies. When did you know your spark? When did you see the spark in you to write? Um, well, I mean, you could go as far back as childhood, I guess, when I used to like writing, but in terms of actually wanting to pursue anything, um, I guess, so I went to uni and did, but I did drama and theatre, I didn't do law at uni, um, because I wanted to be an actor. Did you really? Um, Yeah, yeah, I pursued acting for bloody ages, um, (laughs) and then when I decided to stop, um I decided to go to law school and uh become a barrister so I did all that and writing like any ideas I'd had kind of just went on pause um and then it was after I um so I've been practicing for a couple of years and then I went on maternity leave with my daughter and uh it was when I was off with her I suddenly thought like oh you know I'd really like I'd really like to write but like how long do I have the time and like all those concerns that we all have and then I went back to work and I just suddenly thought like what like for my children like I want them to do whatever they want to do so why am I not doing what I want to do so I was like right I'm just going to start and see where where we get to and um yeah it just started there but I'd always loved writing I just never really considered it as a career until I think much later can I go back to the acting? I didn't know yeah, this about you. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I decided, um, so I used to like really love it. My parents put me in um, acting classes because when I was little, like literally three, I ran away from my nursery classroom and um, went over to the senior school, which was like a good old trek in our school. The school I went to was massive. Yeah, and I went. In, I hid in the costume cupboard so that I could watch the older girls do do drama. <laughs> um, so the head like called my parents in to be like, she ran away. But also, maybe you want to sign her up for acting because she seems really interested. So I started, um, and then yeah, I did like bits of theatre like growing up, um, sort of professionally. Um, did like tiny bits of TV and film, but like really really small parts. Um, and so, yeah, really sort of actively pursued it. Um, went to uni to do drama and theatre. And then I just kind of, I got like the fear, right at sort of graduation where I would have to go like out into the big wide world and actually try to do it. Um, I very much got the fear and um, decided to go to law school instead. Um, so it was kind of like a, a quite a big heartbreak <laughs> in my early 20s. It yeah. did feel like a breakup kind of thing. Yeah. But you had, you said you had the fear, but even though before that, you know, when you were younger, you were going to, you know, you were, you said you were in in the theatre and small parts in TV and film. So where do you think that fear came from when you're, is it because you're about to go out into the big wide world as a graduate? I think it was just like when you're a child and you're acting, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of children out there, but like not that many that are good. (laughs) (laughs) and um you just kind of like have this like confidence about you what I certainly did 
Um, and then I knew how competitive it was. And yeah, I certainly wasn't getting anywhere near the amount of workers like other children, but I just sort of had this confidence about me. But then as I started getting older and was becoming way too old to play a child, I, um, you suddenly realize like, ha- like how many talented people there are mm. and how bloody difficult it is. Um, to be successful and I was kind of like that I'm just like the be all and end all kind of person like if I was going to do it I wanted to be like really successful I couldn't just be like a jobbing actor it just wasn't Mm. I didn't feel like it was in me to like oh I'll do this odd job and then if I get this that'll be great and sort of just keep going like that I wanted it all (laughs) and the thought of not having it just like scared the hell out of me so I did the sensible thing and quit <laughs> quit before I could fail. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, that was quite a big thing. But it certainly, I think, has, like, lent itself to my writing, I think. Yeah. Did anyone say anything to you at that point when you were just making that decision to quit, like family and friends? Did they say, trying to deter you and say, no, stick, a, stick um, at it? I mean, some friends did. Um, my parents had always been really supportive, but they'd they'd also had the, like, maybe have something else as a backup just in case. Mm. Um, and then, but I think when I said that I wanted to stop, my dad said, well, what are you going to do instead? I said, I think I want to train and go and be a barrister. Well, my dad's been a magistrate for since before I was born. And for him, that was like, oh, my God, that's my daughter wants to be a barrister. That's amazing. So he kind of, like, encouraged that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, some friends were like, oh no, you should like keep going, you never know, it could just be around the corner, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, I mean, so many of my friends were wanting to do the same thing and were also finding it really hard. So we were all kind of in the same boat and they were all sort of at that cross point trying to decide what to do. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, quite, yeah, it was really sad. But when I think about it now in I do kind of feel like where I've found myself in writing, I think it was that urge of like wanting to tell stories mm-hmm. through acting. And so it's now it's like, I've just found a way to tell stories, but just in a different way. How did you find the transition from acting to where well, I'm now going to study law? You've been studying drama for so long. Yeah. I mean, it was tough because I went from a drama <laughs> degree to law school. Yeah, but like the academics of it was like pretty brutal. Um, yeah, I mean, it was very, it was incredibly different. That first year of law school where I was just doing the conversion course. Because did you do a conversion? Or did you do? A I did the conversion course. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you and, know how like brutal that course is. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the like the studying, like all that information you have to take on, and oh wow, yeah, it was really brutal. But I was kind of just thinking forward to like doing the bar course which is a lot more sort of like practical. Obviously, mm. they're, still, they're still really hard exams, which I found really tough. I mean, I've always been, I was always academic in school, but yeah, that conversion course was something else. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was sort of learning again to sort of access that part of my brain where you're like, like really intellectually yeah. having to apply yourself. Um, I mean, there was, that. I mean, there was stuff in, so I did drama and theatre at Royal Holloway. It's a really good course. There is a lot of sort of, it's not all practical, but yeah, it's, I mean, nothing like doing a law degree. Um, no. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it was quite a, 
quite a step. And I think I felt, I, I really did feel like, obviously you were with people, especially in the bar course, because obviously everyone's doing the conversion courses in the same spot. Mm. But once I was in the bar course, it was like, oh my God, there's there's people here who've literally been working towards being a lawyer their whole lives. Like this has always been their dream. And it kind of, like they would debate about cases and like, you know, no, all sorts of stuff. I was just like, oh my God, I don't know any of this. Like I really need to like get on my, get on it. Um, so yeah, I felt out of place for quite a while, I think. Well, I was just thinking, because when you do the law conversion course, you're literally um, studying four years of law in one year it's just not even a yeah. year I say no, nine, like nine months, months. yeah, yeah nine months and it's just so, it's so intensive and mm-hmm. then he said you go on to if you do the legal practice course which is for the solicitors or mm. the bar course to be a barrister that is a lot more it's, it's a lot more practical yeah I mean you still have to start I mean it's still academic in a sense but it's a lot more yeah. practical no but it's right what you say like you get there whether you do the LPC or the BVC and well, I changed it now, but anyway, <laughs> you do the bar course, yeah, the BP to see. But there are students there who have been that's been their goal from day one. And as you said, I've never been even a solicitor, I'm never, I don't retain, I retain stuff I need to know, yeah. Exactly. And as soon, yeah, and as soon as like the need for it is done, I get rid of the information in my head. So I was never one of these solicitors as reading off case law, I'm like. <laughs> 30, 40 years ago. I'm like, um, excuse me. <laughs> let me go. I'm gonna need to look this up. Yeah, I need to go and look it up. Or I need you know, I need to know what I need wow. to know. But you said, yeah, wow. so being in that being in that environment where this has been their life from mm-hmm. day one and you're just you're not swanning in, but it feels like you're just like you're just yeah. swanning in. I mean, and like the second year, so when I was doing the bar course, um, so you have to join like an inn of court. And you have to go to like a minimum number of dinners. Sessions. I can't yeah. remember what it was. It was like, was it like 14, 12, 14, something like that. And like you go to those and it's like you're surrounded by all these people who they just know so much. And you're all there like really formally dressed or even in gowns. It's just insane. And then they're like, oh, what did you think about the Supreme Court judgment? And I was like, I don't, I, what do I do? Do I make it up? do I make something up? Like, do I try and excuse myself from the conversation? I don't know. So, yeah, like, I can tell you about a film that just came out. <laughs> or like a book that I just read. I can't tell you about the super, I'm not reading judgments in my spare time, but some people are. And I find it wild. It's, yeah. I don't want to say bizarre. I don't want to say bizarre because obviously that. No, it's not. Was, because that's their, it's not. That's their path and that's, that's the their job. But, yeah, but. That's yeah. why I felt so out of it a lot of the time because, yeah, it wasn't definitely wasn't my spare time. Did you ever question yourself as if to say, you know what, maybe I've made a mistake, maybe I should go back and try the acting? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't. I never actually considered going back. I, I sometimes wondered if I'd made a mistake, but um, I never thought that no, I should. I should stop and go back. Um, I think. No, like if I keep pushing, like I, I'll be a good barrister kind of thing. Um, but yeah, there were definitely times of um, feeling a bit like a just out of it, <laughs> like a deer in the headlights. When did you ever feel like you were in it and that you weren't a deer in the headlights? When did you reach that? When did you reach that point? I think with advocacy, I think 
when we've really started doing like examination in chief, cross examination, like all of the witness mm. stuff, um, I really felt like my actor training sort of really came into play there. Um, and I realized as well that, especially with crime, because that was what was what I was interested in, um, sort of like the the getting the facts of the case and like getting all the information I needed quickly, I was good at. Um, so it was when I started feeling more like, okay, if I become a criminal advocate, like that's really where I'm going to find my place. Yeah. Um, so once we started getting into all of that stuff, I'd like felt like I came into my own and it sort of clicked. It's performative though, isn't it? I yeah, always exactly. say to my, yeah, I always say to my students, I, there's a bit when I'm teaching them cross-examination and mm. examination in chief, the whole speeches, but, and I say, you know, the spotlight shifts from mm. especially in cross-examination like it, it shifts from the prosecution witnesses it's it now shifts mm. to the defendants but I say really in cross-examination the spotlight actually shifts on you because I say jurors yeah, watch definitely. they watch too much tv so they're expecting some kind of a show yeah and when you get into it you do get into this I think depending on your personality you do get into this showmanship you really when you're do cross-examining yeah. someone Absolutely. I mean, yeah, cross-examination was always my just, yeah, the absolute favourite bit. And um, you're just, there's just that freedom, isn't there, to sort of yeah. direct the questions in the way you want and sort of, yeah, like draw the jury's attention. You can like pause in certain places and they sort of like, you can get, when you watch really amazing advocates like the QCs who were just have been doing it for years and years, you can see them controlling the jury and their reactions. And it's, it's really quite incredible, but yeah, it's completely performative. Um, I was, yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I, was, I was just going to tell you about my one foray interacting. Cause like I'm the sort of person I'll make. <laughs> I did drama in school. Um, yeah. But my drama teacher said she couldn't grade me because I didn't do anything. And I was like, is not me being here enough? <laughs> oh, I took a mouthful of coffee at the wrong time. I didn't do, you didn't do anything. So what have you been doing? That's what she said. But I thought I was acting. Apparently I wasn't acting. And then, <laughs> and then, but I used to do like a drama, but then I used to go to like a separate drama class after yeah. school, which was, it had nothing to do yeah. with the school. It was like yeah. in my local area. And then about, God, I'm trying to think, maybe about eight, ten years ago, I'm the sort of person I'll decide one day, oh, I'm just going to do this and I'll go and do it. Yeah. So one, yeah. one New Year's, I was like, I wanna, I'm want, i going to be in, in a Hollywood movie. Like I made a decision and like my New Year's resolution, I'm going to be in a Hollywood movie. So I went and joined this casting agency. Mm-hmm. And then um, I could, it's an extras casting agency. And yeah. I got called to do it was an episode of 24 when they were filming in London, but that was like, that was a night shoot. And I was like, you're just hanging around all night. And then the second one, they called me, it was an Idris Elba film. And um, it was, they were film. I know they were filming in Greenwich and I got a call like, literally like now saying, Oh, are you available to be an extra in Greenwich? And I was like, yeah, I can get it like down the road. But Leah, it was, like today because we're, we're recording this in January when it was like minus oh. five this morning usually yeah. it was minus seven where you are it was like today it was minus something we're filming by the river it's absolutely freezing yeah the wind everything's biting no the wind is biting at you and I'm supposed to be an extra in a 
scene, which is set in Paris in July. Well, so you're not <laughs> you're not dressed for winter. Completely opposite, and we're filming a scene all day. I didn't even get to see Idris Elba after all of that, and now I was like, you know what, that's it, I'm done. And I felt like such a fraud because I said I did it. I did it twice, and then I got called again to do other stuff. I was like, no, I ain't doing it no more. Thank you. But I remember being, <laughs> I remember being in the like the can, you know, like the area, like the waiting area, whatever they call it, with all the other extras and stuff. And they were so serious about their, you know, about their craft. You know what you were saying about, um, yeah. you know, going to law, going to law school, yeah. and being embarrassed. You know, the trainees have been doing it from day mm-hmm. one. So I'm there with these extras who yeah. you know their actors have been doing it from day one and they all know each other from doing different on different mm-hmm. film sets and they're like oh so what do you do and I'm like I'm a solicitor I'm just doing this <laughs> to take it off I'm like to take it off my bucket list yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually interested but they were so well, serious enough for, oh my was, god yeah yeah no that would have been that would have been me when I was like 20 that that was me yeah <laughs> really god. Um, really serious not just for oh my god I feel like such a fraud like this is I'm just here for fun and this is their life it's fun though <laughs> it's fun I well I did quite a lot of extra work and I've always found it really fun um but yeah it's a lot of waiting around <laughs> yeah it's a lot of wait this is the thing it's yeah. not I'm one thing I learned about myself when I started when I before I qualified so you know being a trainee solicitor and especially going to police stations for the first time, I learned that I am not a patient's person. A patient person, I had to learn to be patient because there's so yeah. much waiting around. And then obviously, you get into you know when you're qualified, going to court, you spend oh, God, so much. You can't even explain yeah. how much time you spend just waiting. I mean, for you, I because I've never done defence work. So as mm. a prosecutor, you have your list, so you're busy all day. But I used to watch defence people and be like, oh my god. They have to wait so much. Yeah, so right. so much. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. which is why I, I um, I would use the time. You know, I so said there comes to a point when you've done all the prep you can do. You know, you've spoken to everyone you can speak to. Now you're just waiting for your case to be called on. So it was mm-hmm. always it was always that dead time I would use to write something. Oh wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Mm. Why not? When did you start writing? So yeah. What much. else can you do? No, nothing. So my debut, I started writing. um, So, yeah, I went back to work after maternity leave in like August 2017. And then that was when I decided, right, I really should try. Um, So I did NaNoWriMo that year, um, National Novel Writing Month. Um, So, yeah, November 2017, I started writing When They Find Her. Um, and yeah, I wrote like really consistently for a while. Um, and then uh, what happened? I had like, I, I, I had a bit of a knock um, where I, I entered a competition basically and didn't get longlisted. And I hadn't expected to get longlisted because it's such a, um, like a well-loved and really, really competitive competition. But for some reason, the not getting longlisted just really knocked me and I thought oh god like is this another thing like acting where I'm just like there's just too many people who are way more talented and I'm never gonna make it um so I stopped for a while um like for a good I think six months I just didn't write a word 
And really? Then, um, yeah, just completely stopped. I really freaked myself out. And I was so close to finishing. I, I must have been at like 80,000 words or something. I was so close. And um, and then my husband, um, for Christmas that year, got me uh, like an all access, like a subscription to Masterclass. You know that? that's got all different oh yeah um and he was like oh there's like lots of writers on there maybe you want to like look at some of those and you could start writing again it's like "Mm, yeah we'll see and so I started watching the the Margaret Atwood one and I was like what am I doing like I'm such an idiot like I've worked so hard I should just finish the book and send it out like because you're eight found words in I was so close once I started writing again within a month I was finished like so annoyed I was it wasted so much time. Um, what was it about so, yeah. that masterclass that made you get over the hump? Um, I don't, I've always loved her. And um, she, I can't remember what she was talking about. She, what she, there was a specific like lesson she did on sort of like resilience in writing mm. and about, you know, writing is completely solitary craft. And yes, you'll meet people who will support you, but like you need to be very thick skinned and, sort of have the capacity to like push yourself um and so she was talking about that and I just like yeah it was like something in my head clicked where I was like am I really just gonna let myself stop just because I didn't get into one competition this is my problem with being like hyper competitive is like I it knocks me quite a lot um so yeah it was just something she said and it just I just thought I should just keep going because you never know um Mm. And so, yeah, I decided to start again and um, I started, I think I finished. So I started again in like, I think it was literally New Year's Day. I started again. And then by February I'd finished and then I did edits um, sort of for a few months. And it, in that time I was also pregnant. <laughs> so um, I, I had my son in May, carried on editing. And then in August I had an agent. So, you know, less than, well, like half a year after I started writing again, I had an agent, whereas I'd just completely given up. So when you um, shouldn't stop. No, it just it go it just it does go to show, but it also just raises so many questions that mm. I have. So you, you reach the yeah. point when you do one comp- one competition and you just one, and you don't you one. don't get long listed and you just think, well that's it. It's yeah. it's game over. I really think for me because I'm like a very, I'm a very driven person. I think what it was Mm. is normally one knock wouldn't set me off the way that did. But I I really think that what it was, was sort of like, it's it's a very like aggressive word to use, but the trauma of stopping acting, um, which was something I'd done since I was a child. So it was quite a, well, a very hard thing to let go of. I think the number of knocks I'd had from that, which led me to stop, it, it was sort of like the the leftovers of that. Um, yeah. So like that that knock came for writing, and I was like, oh, it's like it's the same thing. It's exactly the same as writing. It's like, why have I gone from one really competitive thing to another really competitive thing that I'm I'm never gonna have a chance at? Like, look at all these writers that's so amazing, and there's so many books coming out. I'm just never gonna make it. Um, so it was like, yeah, that one tiny knock was just like dominoes for me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I really think it was connected to that sort of fear yeah. of rejection that was left over from acting. 
So how did you get from that to then? I know you. I know you watched Mar- Margaret Atwood mm-hmm. Masterclass. Um, <laughs> I really like. I really like the Neil Gaiman one. That was really good. Anyway, yeah, um, I really liked his one. Uh, yeah, so you you know you you go you go from the feeling the feeling of rejection to watching mm-hmm. the masterclass, and then you pick up this book that was already at eighty thousand words, and eighty thousand words mm-hmm. is a you know a novel. They'll say eighty to hundred thousand words. That's a mm-hmm. that's a novel. So you go you pick it back up again. So how do you then get from that to I'm now going to submit an agent? Because it's like you've completely retold the story I that's know. in your head. Yeah. Um... I, I think once I started writing again, it took a while. Well, it took a little while to like reorientate myself, um, mm. like in the story. I was like, what's happening? Like, what is this? Um, and then once I did and I started writing, I then kind of became obsessed with finishing it. Um, because I think by this point I was like, like five months pregnant, something like that. Um, and sort of like the obsessive part of my brain kind of like switched on where I knew that if I want, if I, if I wanted, if I was going to write, I was writing to be published. I wasn't just writing for fun. Um, so that sort of obsessive part of my brain turned on where I was like, I have to get this done before the baby comes. <laughs> because if I get this done before the baby comes, it's not going to get done. Um, so I was really obsessive. I was writing every single day. Um, was very very disciplined with myself and then I knew that it would need a number of edits before it went anywhere um so the getting it ready to go out to agents was like very much at the forefront of my mind um as soon as I decided to get going again um and yeah so it then all just kind of clicked in into place I think um it was just it was just pushing myself back into that um like back onto that road where I was really pursuing publishing rather than like, I've just given up. (laughs) It's might sound like a really strange question, question, but when did you know that you could write and that your craft was, that you developed your craft enough to complete a novel that was a novel that an agent would pick up? Um... I'm not sure really I I think I I had I had confidence in my like ability to come up with a story that was like gripping and so I, I think I had I had real confidence in my ability as a storyteller kind of thing what I wasn't mm. sure about was like how good my writing was um in terms of the writing itself um and, you know, I, I got feedback from people and started thinking, OK, well, maybe my writing is good. Um, but I don't think I don't think that real confidence of like, OK, maybe I really could do this happened until I sent it out to agents. I, I had no clue when I sent it out to agents whether it would be like rejected across the board and it was never yeah. going to be published or whether people would like it. I, I really felt in the dark. Um, but my agent um, now um, came back literally within like an hour and a half asking to see the whole thing. Oh, like, really? 
yeah I was like maybe this is maybe it's good I don't know um so yeah that kind of spurred me on I think that agent reaction was like the first thing that made me think like I could I could actually do this um well an hour and a half it's like it was very quick (laughs) (laughs) my husband's got a video of me like Someone's asked to see it. <laughs> they, they, want, they want the full thing. I always say the first oh. hurdle is, you know, is getting the agent to say, I want to read the full manuscript. That's mm. the first hurdle. Yeah. So but to then get, you get that, you get to that, get that, that, like, what if just the beginning's really good and then they hate the rest? Oh, yeah. I, I had that. I When I got asked for the full manuscript, I was like, yeah, you can have it. No, first I said, you're going to have to wait. Because I said I'm still messing about with it, so you can have. I thought like, you can have it in about four weeks. This is how you not um not, not yeah not right. naive, not the right word. Yeah, I was just like you're just gonna have to wait. I just wasn't even thinking yeah. about it. I'm like it's not yeah. ready. And then yeah. when I did send it, I just thought, yeah, they'll read it and just think, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> no That's thanks. And it's like it's so subjective. Like you just don't you don't know and like, like you could just be missing the agent off of your list who like would just like absolutely love but you just you you don't know it's really yeah 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 that and also you can't really yeah and you can't this one so you can't really write to trends either because what no. might be hot the week you start writing the book the time you submit it is something oh. else so you don't you're not even 100 sure what they're looking for you're just looking at who's on their author list exactly exactly and just I mean I heard about my agent from another podcast actually um so they had an author on who was talking about his agent and I wrote down her name and then when I came to like making my list I was like oh who was that agent that they were talking about and I found this like scrap of paper I was like oh I should send it definitely send it to her I really I like the sound of her yeah just so happened that she yeah liked it and liked it really quickly as well which was like a boost I think that I needed I mean that's such a boost I mean 90 minutes I mean Mm. days I would have been that's a good boost but 90 (laughs) 90 minutes you just had a chance to have a cup of tea (laughs) and the thing is as well is I, I was sat there with my phone and I kept on refreshing and I was like, why am I doing this? Like, no one is going to come back to me this quickly. My husband was like, just put your phone away. Like, stop looking at your emails. And then something came. I was like, something's come. I was like, Shush. Oh, my I thought, God. Oh, this is a really, really quick rejection. Well, thought, that's what you'd be like, thinking. I thought. I thought she's read the cover letter and thought, nah, not for me. Oh, yeah. Were you ready for the rejection? You know, because you've had it before in the past with the acting. Yeah. Were you ready? I think, I think by that point, I had... Like, for like, ever since I started writing, I've very, like, obsessively been, like, listening to podcasts, like, doing my research about, like, the way the mm. industry works and all of that. So I think by that point where I was actually querying, I had fully prepared myself for rejections. Um, yeah. I felt, and I felt like, I, okay, right, if everyone, I only, I sent to a fairly small group, I think I sent to six initially, um so I was like right if everyone in this group rejects it we'll do edits and then we'll send that to more like it's not like every agent in the country has rejected you so I think by that point I was feeling much more able to um sort of withstand any rejections that came but it didn't come because they were like luckily luckily not yeah so so that's the first I mean so that's you know the first stage 
you get the full mm. manuscript request then they say I want to represent you how yeah. did you feel in that moment because now you've got someone saying that they want you for your and it's yeah. for your for your creativity similar to being an actor I suppose yeah exactly yeah it was somewhat yeah she we met and yeah just chatting to her it was like oh wow like this person really gets me kind of thing mm. they like get my writing they understand where I'm coming from my worry with my writing and I don't know whether it was ever the same for you was like is this too dark are people gonna get it and because yeah my sense of like everything I love about culture leans towards the darker side um, yeah. I know that not everyone is like that so I did fear like oh is this going to be too much for some people um but she just seemed to really get it and I was like oh wow like okay and she thinks like that she can sell it like obviously agents only take you if they think they can sell your stuff otherwise they're not gonna offer you representation so I was like okay <laughs> like she actually thinks she can get me a deal like and we talked about like you know who she can send it to and like what will happen if she doesn't sell it? Because that was a fear of mine was, you know, if she doesn't sell it, is she just going to drop me? Um, so we drew all of that and I just felt really comfortable with her and really confident in her. So yeah, it just felt like, oh, okay, it's not just me now. Like I have someone on my team because yeah, I think, yeah, writing is really solitary and being published is quite a hard process um and yeah feeling like there's someone like you have an agent who's on your team and like it's not just you is really nice really reassuring um you don't realize so how much you, yeah I was gonna say you don't realize how much you expose yourself when mm-hmm. you become published you said because mm-hmm. you said you're, it's so much of writing is so solitary mm-hmm. And then the minute you sign with a publisher, now your book is out there. So then another mm. guest say, you know, it's not just your book, it's you. Yeah. It's yeah. And, it's, and it's this constant, not even a fair, but, you know, the constant, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, and it will come to me and I'll edit it out. But no, it's all right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's, it's knowing that rejection is always there, whether yeah. it's going to be oh, from yeah. a reader uh, someone reviewing your book that's what you're constantly exposed to mm-hmm. yeah and it's it, it yeah and it's that that feeling of like no matter how successful my last book was you're kind mm-hmm. of judged on your most recent work kind of thing um so yeah. if I don't make this book as good as the next one like readers will like turn away from me they'll find someone else there's so many other writers out there you know, will my publisher give me? So it's that constant, like, I don't think you ever, I mean, from speaking to authors I know who are like big bestsellers, I don't think you ever reach a point where you're completely like, oh, I've got this in the bag. Like, yeah, every book, like, every book I release is going to be really popular and successful because it doesn't, the industry doesn't <laughs> seem to work that way. You can have a massive, no, what's massive the- book and the next one just tanks. Like, it, there's no nah. predictability at all. I think, I think that's the scary thing. You, you see it happen. You see these massive debuts, you know, that, you know, they're everywhere and they're applauded and they're mm-hmm. award winning and this and that. And then the second book, and you're like, well, was there a second book? Because it's yeah, literally it? come and gone. gone? <laughs> that, yeah. yeah. Where did it go? I so when, when you're, 
<laughs> it's yeah, it's it's a very strange industry to put to like voluntary put yourself into when you think oh, about yeah. it. Absolutely. Just like so masochistic. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So how did you feel? So when when your first novel came out, when they yeah. find her. Yeah. How was that moment for you? And you can tell the listeners what When They Find Her is about. I know you write standalones, don't you? So Yeah. So I write standalones. Um, I've had two out so far. So When They Find Her. Wow, it feels like a long time ago. Wasn't that actually that long ago? It's mad. <laughs> um, so yeah, When They Find Her came out in 2021. Um, and it is about a mother, Naomi, who has a daughter, Freya, who actually lives away from her with her ex-husband and his new wife. Um, But she finally has Freya over for a sleepover for the first time in a very long time. And uh, tragedy essentially strikes. And Naomi, in her panic, um, instead of telling her husband and police what's happened to Freya, she tells them that Freya has gone missing. And the story sort of escalates from there. Um, so yeah, that one, when it came out, I think it was, it was incredibly surreal because we'd obviously 2020 had happened. Um, Mm. so when I got my deal, it was January of 2020. So it was pre COVID hitting us. Um, and you have this sort of very specific view of what's going to happen in the year and a half leading up to your publication and um you know my publisher had given me like all these plans of what was going to happen and etc etc you're going to go out meet booksellers you're going to you know we're going to have this event that event all this stuff and then covid and none of that can happen um my book came out just after we came out of a lockdown um so it was kind it was it was incredibly surreal because my book was out there and it was very exciting and it was getting really good reviews um but then I hadn't had the experience as a debut that I had expected and I think a lot of debuts who had sort of COVID books felt the same way yeah like, kind of <laughs> I like never thought of it as a <laughs> no like you were like it sounds ungrateful and I don't think anyone means it in an ungrateful way because we're all very happy to be published, but it was kind of like you were robbed a little bit of, um, well, not, don't need to justify it. No, we I'm, were robbed I'm, of the <laughs> publication that we were meant experience. to experience. Um, yeah. yeah. No, <clears> you're right. Because I never, I never thought of calling it a COVID book because, yeah. <laughs> you know, a COVID book in my head is, about a book about the pandemic but yeah no, you're 100 right because mine came out um I always get the dates wrong February 2021 yeah, yeah I was February 2021 yeah so we're yeah, smack in the middle of COVID yeah. of lockdown mm-hmm. yeah yeah and you said you're right you had all these ex- all these expectations and all these mm. plans that had been made yeah. with your publisher I had the same thing. I had all these plans. Um, even little things like going to see the actor narrating the, the, the audio book. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah, being in the studio. All those plans were in place. And then all those plans just 
came crashing. Oh. It didn't even come crashing down. It just, you know, the door just closed and off they went because we, everyone was in lockdown. So it exactly. was kind of, yeah, it was surreal. You knew you had a book out there and I would see, I mean, obviously I had my author copies that got delivered mm-hmm. to me. But in terms of seeing the published book out in the world, I didn't see it. And I kept yeah. seeing pictures. So people send me photographs and, you know, they'll be in the supermarket and they'd see it. And it was it was about, what, three, four months? Four months maybe before I saw it in wow. a bookshop and yeah. had it in a bookshop for myself and then had that, it was like a delayed reaction to what should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It felt for me like the, like, yeah, it was just weird because it, it did feel very delayed. And mm. I, I mean, I was, I was really happy with, so my ebook and audio book came out slightly before the hardback. My publisher decided to do it that way. And the reception to the ebook and audio book was, was really amazing. And I was really, really ecstatic about that. So it kind of like was like my publication was in stages because then the hardback happened and I had that similar feeling to you, like yeah. the actual book was out there, but like I didn't see it and um, it wasn't out there as much as it would have been because we had we had the whole issue of like all the books that were lockdown books. So, for example, Girl A, which was like one of the massive books of that year, mm. had been they hadn't been selling it in stores because obviously the stores were closed. <laughs> so all the stock from sort of January of 2020 was still sitting there. Um, so then it was like, it felt like the pay, I think the paperback release felt like kind of like the bigger thing in the end um, because it was the one where I, I, I was actually out there. Like I went to all the shops and saw it and that was really lovely. Um, so yeah, it just felt like a very, yeah, it just so I mean, people say anyway that publication day is very surreal, and I definitely experienced that with the second one. It's just kind of because you imagine it as like the climax of the journey kind of thing. It's a day for the author where nothing really happens. Like the book's <laughs> out there, but you're not really getting that many reviews. You're you're getting the reviews that you've already seen, like from NetGalley or from authors. Um, There's nothing new. Readers. Nothing's new. New readers aren't going to give you reviews for at least a few days or weeks. Um, like the most that's going to happen on your publication days, you go to the shops and you see it. So it's kind of like, oh, nice. And then that's <laughs> it. Like publication day is just a massive anticlimax. You're not the first author to say that on the it show. I, I, I mean, you get, you get flowers. I got flowers for my publisher. Oh, yeah, and... getting, yeah, it's very, it's very surreal. Um, but the when they the the release of when they find her yeah was just COVID book um, yeah I think of COVID book as COVID babies <laughs> you know like you know the children who are born COVID um, and they're like oh what what issues will these children have numbers of years in the future it's like my poor little COVID book <laughs> I know my cousin he calls um he's, he calls his daughter he goes the COVID baby I'm like don't call that oh, she's not like, because she is because she was born in COVID and I didn't see her yeah. for the first time until she was like yeah. seven seven months I think that's when I first saw her wow. mad but yeah so, so it's um it's an interesting experience being published yeah very so what <laughs> one day we, we will both make our publication days something 
the thing really we want it to be. Yeah, really, yeah. really big event. So what was it like writing your second book? Did you have second? I always think second album syndrome sounds so much cooler than second book it syndrome. Does. But did, did you have it? Um, I did. Um, I did have it. I have third book syndrome has actually been worse. <laughs> God. But um, sec- the second book was, it's weird, isn't it? Because you're writing it before your debuts come out. So yeah. that's quite weird because you don't know what the reception for the first one's going to be. Um, but I just, I really wanted, you've got that thing in your head of wanting to write something that's like different enough from, definitely with standalones, different enough from your first one that people don't think you've just written the same book. Um, mm-hmm. But also to give any readers you do have in the future um, something familiar, like they're coming back to you because they're a writer that they enjoy, you're a writer that they enjoyed. So you yeah. want to give them something that feels like you. Um, so it was it it was quite hard going. For me, the because I plot quite meticulously, the bit I get stuck on for quite a while is the plotting. Um, if I run into a plot problem while I'm drafting, uh, I can't move on. I have to fix it. Um, so I think that happened. That was the biggest sort of book two syndrome that I encountered was I reached sort of like the, I guess, the climax of book two. Um, I shouldn't call it book two. Your word or mine. It's got a name, your word or mine. <laughs> it's got a name. Um, so, yeah, your word or mine sort of, um, yeah, it's about a prosecutor who um, was um, sexually assaulted when she was a teenager and um she 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 runs into the man who um who did it um but got away with it um a number of years later um when he is the victim in one of her cases um and so you reach the climax between these two characters and i just couldn't decide how it was meant to end i i had plotted the whole book but then I just couldn't decide on the ending. So I was like, I'll write until I get there. But what happened then was I wrote until I got there. And then I just stand still. I could not figure it out. I ended up plotting four different outcomes. Really? (laughs) And then then sat there and was like, which one, like, which one's the best? Like, how do I do this? I just couldn't, couldn't figure it out. I couldn't decide what would be the most satisfying, what would be like the most compelling, the most gripping. Um, And I just kept on thinking like, the ending is so important like how how does it tie into what I'm trying to say with the book as well and it just really sort of boggles my mind um and there's you feel like obviously an expectation as well from your publisher because they've they've signed you based on book one Mm. you don't know what they're getting with book two so you think oh my god like what if they only love my debut and anything else I write and give them they're just like oh this isn't very good um (laughs) So, yeah, I definitely had that feeling of, like, wanting to deliver something that they would love as much as when they find her. Um, Do you find it difficult to move away from your plots? Because I I always say I I write my plots out. Like, I I have to outline. I need to to know. Mm -hmm. I need something there. Like, I need my safety net. But if something happens in the story, and I always say, you know, if something happens organically in the story and it goes Mm -hmm. off in a different direction... Yeah. I don't feel the need to return back 
to my plot. Can you do that? Or are you, this is my plot, this is what I planned. No, so I can can move away from what's happening in my outline. But if I do move away from what's happening in my outline and I realise that means I need to change things that have already been drafted, I have to go back and fix it before I can move on. Um, I find that quite, I've, I, I tried with book three with, um, so my next one's called the confession room. I tried with that one too. I was like, I'm just going to be one of those people who I just note down what the issue is and keep writing. Couldn't do it. (laughs) Couldn't do it. Um, I have to fix as I go. And it's just, it seems to be what works for me. Cause then I get to the end of my first draft and it's like fairly clean. But no, it's 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 quite troubling for me, the plot. My first drafts aren't clean. My first drafts are messy. No. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't mind the mess though. No, I, 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 really, I, yeah. I like fixing it. That's um, the thing. I really want to write a messy draft, but my brain wants me to fix it. I it can't do it. Mm-mm. But you know what you were saying about book. You mentioned book three being hard. Mm. I found book I found book three, starting book three harder than writing book, book two. two. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Really, really hard. And I can't I work out why that was. <laughs> I'm hoping a book's going to come that isn't more difficult than its previous one, but I don't know. It, they might just get harder and harder. Yeah, know, it was really... what, what for you was, was harder? I don't... I can't put my finger on it. Why book three... Because you're writing a series I found, as well. Yeah, I'm so writing a series. So it's like how do, like obviously you've got you've 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 got your world and you've got your character, so that's comforting. But you're having to write a completely new scenario for these characters that you know isn't repetitive, is new and exciting. Like I don't yeah, that's hard. All of that. I mean it's yeah. it's, it's all of that because what I don't want is what you said earlier. I don't want readers to pick up a book and go, well, it's the same mode, same mode. I mean, there are some mm-hmm. things that are always gonna be the same. Like an interview scene at the police station is always going to be an interview scene at the police station. An arrest is always going to be an arrest. And there are some things that you just can't change. So it's just making sure I can create a really interesting story in terms of the investigation, in terms of the crime. And remembering that the characters, you know, they they grow. They don't just remain stagnant in one in one yeah. place or emotionally that they are you know I have to think of them as real living people mm-hmm. you know the person I was six months ago is not the person I am today so I have to remember that but it's it's hard I don't want readers saying oh this is, this is just the same book it's just yeah. the same book it's just it's now summer instead of winter and yeah. you know it's, it's, it's a different craft yeah, but it's, you know, it's Henley. But yeah, I yeah. Fa- I don't know. I can't put my finger on why I just found it more difficult. I think it was more, I think it was more a case of the story I was telling myself mm-hmm. as opposed to this isn't good. This isn't good. Mm-hmm. This isn't good. I think I kept mm-hmm. telling myself it's probably not as good as this story is not as great as the last one. And I had yeah. to stop telling myself that and just write the story and just see how it, it goes. And I think I was looking for something clever. Yeah, if that that's makes a really sense. Tricky thing as well, mm. it? like wanting to be really clever. Yeah, and, um, like if you say to yourself, "I'm going to think of something really clever," like it's never going to happen. It's not, like, not going to happen. Those things come to you, like yeah, in the shower or, yeah, exactly. They come to you in the shower. It comes to you when you're washing up. It comes to you when you're watching the dustman. You know, take up your yeah. parking space because they haven't moved the truck. <laughs> like it comes to you in those moments. 
so so the confession room is book free Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's out in august do you want to tell the listeners of the conversation podcast what the confession room is about and then we'll go on to our questions fab yeah so the confession room was actually inspired by something i read about um called the um apology line which was like an experiment that someone did in new york in the 70s um where they basically put up these posters with a phone number saying like if you've got something you want to apologize for anonymously like you can do it to this like voicemail essentially um and there's actually a there's actually a podcast on the apology line that the man's wife has ended up doing. Um, so the confession room is a um, an internet forum where people um, can confess anonymously to to anything, a secret, a wish, a dark wish, um, and it's sort of it's advertised as anonymous atonement and. The main character is Amelia Haynes, who is an ex-police officer. Um, so she left the police because she was suffering with PTSD because her sister was murdered. Um, and she's very much become obsessed with solving crimes because she couldn't save her sister or solve um, what happened to her sister. And um, somebody begins confessing to murders on the confession room. And Amelia sort of tries to seek out what is um what is happening um and as the case grows and escalates um she sort of gets sucked further and further into the case and what's happening sounds so cool I can't wait to read it um, (laughs) I mean it's very different to my first two which I think is what I struggled with um it felt very different I was like oh I don't know is this is this me like it's much more crime sort of thing than psychological Yeah, so that was that was a challenge at first. But I think the readers are going to love it. I hope so. From the sound, I hope not. I hope so. I know, so I'm going to predict it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're welcome, Leah. I've got (laughs) I've got four questions for you. Yeah. So, are you an introvert or extrovert or a hybrid of the two? I think I'm a hybrid of the two. when I'm in like public scenarios so say for example when we go to see each other at Harrogate in mm. a scenario like that very sociable very outgoing happy to stand there all night and talk to people but for the most part in my day-to-day life I'm quite introverted um like my own space my own time <laughs> okay yeah. what what challenge or experience in your life shaped you the most uh well we've talked about it already I think the, the stopping acting was a pretty life sort of sent me on a very different trajectory in my life um which I think has ended up with me writing um I think the combination of acting and law has ended up with me writing what I write now do you think having the success that you've had with when they find her and your words or mine has that kind of softened the impact oh of yeah going through all that trauma of acting Absolutely. And I mean, I don't, mm. now looking back, I think like, I absolutely think now as a woman in her 30s, as opposed to like a girl in her very early 20s, like it was absolutely the right thing for me to do. Yeah. I think I've ended up in the right place. Yeah. Oh, so good. Which okay. Is nice. so it's, yeah. <laughs> it is nice. It's, it's so nice to feel that 
you know, everything you went through, that, yeah, yeah, it it was 100% worth it. Mm. So if you were to go back to when you were 25 years old and give yourself one, (laughs) and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, I think it would be to try to not be so sensitive. Um, and to, yeah, I mean, I think in the almost 10 years since I was 25, I've learned to sort of toughen up a bit, um, and to sort of just take rejections that come as something to sort of spur you on. Um, so I think it would be that to just sort of try and keep pushing. Um, yeah. And finally, where can listeners of the conversation find you online and buy your books? Because that's what we need them to do. <laughs> you can find me online. So I'm on Instagram. Instagram? <laughs> Instagram. <You're> on... <laughs> I'm on Instagram. It's a, new, it's, a new, it's a new social media platform. Instagram. Um, at Leah Middleton author. And I'm on Twitter at Leah Middleton, but with a, with a zero instead of an O because... Someone took the normal Leah Middleton. <laughs> Leah Middleton with the zero. With the zero. Yeah. Leah Middleton, thank you for being part of the conversation. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me so much. <laughs> thank you for joining me for this episode of The Conversation. I'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. Make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss out on the next episode or any bonus episodes. And it would mean a lot if you took a minute to leave a review. You can follow me on social media. My links are on my website, nadinematheson.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, email the conversation at nadinematheson.com. See you soon. <laughs>